we all long for something. In fact, in um, the Thursday email last week, I jotted down that even when we're not longing for something, we're, we're longing to long for something a lot of times. From the infant um, who uh, screams for food or a nap to the adult who screams for food or a nap. <laughs> if all of us have anything in common, we have lots in common, but if any of us have, if we have anything in common, I think the top two probably would be oxygen and longing. And longing sometimes can be so strong that I think oxygen and longing compete for first place sometimes in our lives. Well, this morning we're going to look at longing for the courts of the Lord. And we're going to ask the question, do we, do we long to be in the presence of God? And I hope that this message will be a challenge to us in that aspect, but I think, I hope also that we'll see that uh, longing for God's presence is, is superior to longing for food and longing for naps and everything else. So this psalm we have for us this morning is kind of broken up into three, you know, really broken up well into three sections. And so we, I chose to go that route as far as presenting the text to you this morning. And so point number one is going to be basically, blessed are those who are in God's house. Blessed are those who are in God's house. So verse four of our psalm says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And then there's that word Selah. So why is it? Why is it a blessing to be in the house of God? The first thing is this. God is there. Therefore, it is a lovely place. Okay, so God is there and therefore it is a lovely place. Now, what images come to mind when you hear the word lovely? Go ahead, spit them out. Aww. Every guy in this room is now shooting darts at the back of Troy's head. God, what did I think of that? Okay, what else? If anyone didn't hear that, Troy said his wife. Okay. What else? When you hear the word lovely? Children? Okay. Okay, so nice decorations. Sunset, creation, flowers, butterflies. Huh? Ice cream. Someone said ice cream. Probably a kid. Yeah, these, these are lovely things. It's, it's kind of interesting, though. You didn't hear a lot of wives say, my husband. I mean, generally, you would, you would kind of, and, and this may be a total, you know, I guess, sexist thing to say or whatever, but, but generally you would, you would think of things that are not necessarily masculine. Uh, you, you probably won't hear that word used around uh, a bunch of guys talking about sports, for instance. So you won't say, you know, that was a lovely reception Julio Jones made the other, you know, Julio Jones made the other game in the game, you know, or something like that. You, you just don't hear that necessarily being a descriptive word for masculine things. And so the, I'm sorry? I think I've let you people loose to be just way too out of control, so simmer down a little bit and let's, let's, let's get back here. 
But the, but the word itself is, is, you know, this word lovely just means to be well-loved. And so the word in its meaning does apply to any type of praise. I mean, you might say that was an awesome reception such and so made. And though you didn't, you know, use the words like lovely, you were stating that the reception was well-loved by you. Boy, did you see that pass or something like that, you know, and I'm talking strictly football. There's other sports and that sort of thing. But the writer of the psalm is basically stating that the temple, and I think it's the temple. Some people say temple. Some people say tabernacle. Um, uh, we, can, we can chew that out later. But the, but the writer of this psalm is stating that the temple was not well loved because of its phenomenal architecture. But it was lovely because it was God's dwelling place. Verse 1 says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. He goes on to say in verse 2 that it was so well loved that it it makes him faint thinking about it. So verse 2, he says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's something we don't understand very much necessarily, but that is that is, uh, there's just such a, a love and, a, and, a, and an emotion involved in that that people can bug out and faint. And notice again, he says he, he faints for the courts of the Lord, not because of their incredible decor, but he says he faints for the courts of the Lord. He wants to be where the Lord is. And what I mean by he, or this is a psalm from the sons of Korah. And not necessarily David here. But David does affirm this sentiment in a couple of psalms. So in Psalm 27, 4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And you say, one thing? Man, there's like 20 things a day for me as far as asking from the Lord. And David, probably that was true of him as well. I'm sure he's constantly requesting things of the Lord. But when it came to that, that primo important thing to ask, he's saying it was to be in the presence of the Lord, constantly gazing at his beauty. And then Psalm 63, 63 1, David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so David wrote this psalm while he was in the wilderness. And so he connects dying for water in the wilderness with having a longing for God. And as far as application for us is concerned, Rocky is a nice building. I mean, we, we have been blessed with rooms to meet in, no doubt about that. But the only reason this place ought to be lovely or well-loved is because the Lord is here. And he should, uh, excuse me, and, and, and we, excuse me, should only long for Rocky because this is where God meets with his people. Letter number B is this. God is there. You can see a theme developing. Therefore, it is a unique place. So God is there, therefore, it is a unique place. There were some common things between the temple in Jerusalem and the pagan temples in the surrounding nations. I mean, they were made of stone. Sacrifices were made in them. People came to them. But what is the one unique difference about the temple in Jerusalem? The temple in Jerusalem was the house of the living God. All other gods were not alive. 
They were imaginary or they were idols. David says, in, or excuse me, the psalmist says in verse 2, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. That, that created kind of a, a unique place for the temple. I'm, I'm going there, but I'm, I'm interacting, I'm adoring, I'm, I'm giving praise to a, a God who is alive. As Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Isaiah 45.5 and 6 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So Rocky is a unique place because we gather to sing for joy to the living God. You may say, well, isn't that true of everybody who's kind of meeting today? It's not like we, you know, kind of have the temple of Dagon around the corner and, and, and the temple of Molech down the street or even in the next country. And I'm thankful that we don't, but we, we do have cults that are meeting in Niceville today. There are, there are cults that are meeting today, and their God is not the God or the Christ of the Bible. And therefore, they are gathering in praise of a fantasy or a lie. But we gather and join, bad quote, but Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments when we say, our God is God. Letter number C is God is there and therefore it is a contented place. Verse 3 is a little strange. Talking about birds. It's a little out of the ordinary. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. What's that all about? There's no doubt that verse 3 is probably a, a, a kind of a simple observation from the psalmist. And there are probably birds in the temples. You ever walk into Lowe's? You know, and there's almost a flock of birds in those places. You know, and you kind of go, you know, can you call a pest control company and, and kind of handle taking care of your birds or something like that? But there are, you know, sometimes birds in Walmart and other places like that. And so there were probably, no doubt, there were birds maybe in the temple at some point. And those birds, you know, made their nests in the temple and were, were secure from fear of enemies. So may the people of God, you know, make their home in God and find their security in him. You know, and though... Some have tried, you know, as, as I studied this and everything, tried to allegorize the sparrows and the swallows to symbolize things. You know, like the, the sparrows were the psalmists writing this and the swallows were their children. And, you know, it, it kind of got a little bizarre out there. I don't think that you could use a little metaphorical language, a little poetic symbolism that supports this idea that, that where God is means to be there means you have a, a, a contentment about you. There's a peace, there's a rest, there's a, there's a calming effect to being in the presence of God. And here's what I mean by this. Sparrows, basically in scripture, sparrows are almost always symbolic of something that is kind of borderline worthless. So in Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And the penny basically is one of the lowest uh, denominational uh, money things that was in money at that time. And so you couldn't even buy, you know, you could buy two for the price of that. And yet sparrows, according to our psalm, have, have found their home near God's altar. And so if God brings safe shelter, which is kind of the epitome of, of contentment, to sparrows, how much more will he provide safety for you and I? That's a beautiful thing. Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor and theologian, uh, one of the dead guys, said, uh, said about sparrows, he said, I look down some little street and see a humble chapel where a group of simple people worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness despised and rejected of men, even as was their Lord, and I know that this is the rich reality of spiritual truth. Here are the sparrows who find their nest at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here is worthlessness that finds its worth because the Savior died. And so we as sparrows come into God's house and experience the epitome of contentment, which is safe shelter. But not only sparrows, but swallows are used in our passage. And they are doing something very specific. Notice it says, the swallow finds a nest for herself in verse 3. And the reason this is really significant is because the swallow, both in reality and the scripture, really symbolizes restlessness. Have you never seen a sparrow nested? I mean, it's, unless you kind of have, you know, one of those houses on the poles, you know, you see sometimes around here in Florida. I don't know if you've even seen a swallow, but those things are just zooming all over the place all the time. And we who hate mosquitoes are very grateful for those things. But it almost seems like a, a sparrow is just restless. In fact, in Proverbs 26, verse 2, it says, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not, and then it's used this old word, alight, which basically means it does not land. So a swallow almost never seems to land. But when it comes to God's house, the swallow nests. And we, like swallows, will, will, will find peace only in the presence of God. And so that's why, in a lot of ways, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. There's no doubt that a congregation is not free of worry, necessarily. There are people in here who are fretting about the next decision. There are people in here who are wondering about this or that. But folks, take great care and comfort and joy in the fact that being here, you know, Scripture's twisting your arm into thinking, let that stuff go and relax. Just delight in the presence of God. Not because it's just some mythical idea of something that can happen out there. No, this is a reality from the Scripture. We are sparrows, worthless sinners. We are swallows flitting about our daily schedules, our jobs, our personal tragedies, our worries and cares and concerns. Something as shallow maybe as where we're going to eat this afternoon or something as serious as I have 
a disease inside of me that is killing me from the inside out right now. But we are able, due to the ability to long for the Lord and delight in his presence, we have the ability to, instead of flitter around, we nest. The second thing is, blessed are those who are going to God's house. Not everyone was able to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people of Israel were scattered all over the the area in that country. Uh, Some of it was ancestral homes. You know, they allotted the lands out to different tribes and other things like that. But, But many of them longed to visit the temple. And the psalmist does not forget those who, who journey to God's house. In fact, the, you know, it's kind of up in the air, but a lot of people interpret this as one of those psalms of ascent because of this little section that we're going to look at. And that basically means as people were walking up to Jerusalem, they had certain psalms that they could sing as they were heading to Jerusalem. And, and some people think that this is one of them. And this section definitely, you know, points to that. So why are those who are going to God's house blessed? Letter number A is this, going to God's house reveals a right relationship with the Lord. Don't miss this. Going to God's house reveals a right relationship with the Lord. Verse 5, he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And just to point out two or three things, first of all, a right relationship with God is a desire to be with God. I want to obey him. I want to be in his presence. Whatever it takes, whatever sin I must confess, whatever thing I must follow after, a right relationship is a desire to be with God. These people had the highways to Zion in their heart. And that is a beautiful picture of a, of, of a people who wanted to go in a situation where it was commanded to, for them to go. How many of you, parents, threw out the thou shalt clean thy room command. And how many of your children possibly engaged in something, whether it was a screen or something like that, just threw it to the side and said, of course I shall. And, and, and went to the task. Anyone? No. And there's reasons for that, you know, they're, they're, they're caught up in this or they're in the moment. There, there is that, and this is very important. But, but rarely thou shalt is almost an immediate signal in the back of our rebellious minds of, oh yeah? It was mandated yearly to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice at the temple. This was, a, this was a mandated thing, yet these people in their hearts said, I want to go to Zion. You go down here, and then you take a ride, and then you kind of go through this town and over the hill, and, you know, the, the highway to Zion is mapped out in their hearts. They want to go there. I mean, despite the fact that this is mandated, despite the fact that this is a, has, a have-to kind of situation, their heart's cry is, how can we not go to Zion? And I hope that's our desire here. How can I not go to church on Sunday? How can I not be with God's people? How can I not be together with God's people honoring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How can I not be in the presence of God? 
Now, I know that there are some people who say, well, my church is nature, and, you know, and so I'm on a boat on Sundays out there, and the birds chirp, and that's praise, and the, the water brushes up against the boat, and that's the sound of God's glory and stuff like that. No, it's not. On, 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 in some ways, it is because the Scripture says, you know, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, but the idea there is the heavens are hinting at the glory of God. Birds chirping is not the gospel being presented to your ears. The water sloshing up against the boat is not your personal discipleship happening. And, and I understand, yes, God is there. God is everywhere. We had a joke at seminary that, you know, when men, when we're trying to figure out where to go after seminary, they said, God is everywhere. Go where the money is. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, yeah, you know, we'd elbow each other and ha, ha, ha after that. But God is everywhere. So you are as much in a way in the presence of God in your living room as you are here. But I think there's just something amazing about the, the, the promises of God that he is there when two or three are gathered together. He is there when the body gets together and worships together. And I pray that we have a, a highway design in our hearts highway to Rocky, so to speak. Number two is this, a, a right relationship with God is a reliance on God to be able to see him. These people relied on the Lord to get them there. Verse five says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. One of the and I didn't ask his permission, I apologize, brother, but one of the communications Troy often does to the elders and everything like that is he'll say what he's saying, you know, that I'll be here or I'll be there, and then he puts an LW sometimes. Sometimes he just says, Lord willing. And, you, you know, you kind of look at that and say, does the Lord really need to be involved for you to be able to do that, Troy? And the answer is yes. The answer is Yes. And acknowledging that is, is, is a beautiful thing to do. Now, doesn't mean, you know, Lord willing, can I take two steps to the left and, and, and things like that. And we just say, Lord willing to everything. But, but these people say that blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. In other words, their strength is in the Lord. We want to go to Zion. We'll do it whatever we can to get to Zion. But we also understand that if we have any strength to be able to do so, it's because of the Lord. How on earth are we going to be able to make it to Jerusalem this year? Well, the Lord is our strength. The third thing is people in a right relationship with God will see his providence in their lives. So verse 7, he says, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So here we have kind of the fulfillment of their desire. They have the, they have the highway uh, to Zion in their hearts. They're like, how are we going to go? We're going to go because we have the Lord's strength. We are strong in the Lord. And then they went. And it says that, and this was not easy terrain. I mean, we're, we're talking mountains. We're talking hiking. We're talking other things like that. This was not necessarily something that was an easy trip, although it was probably easier for them because they trekked it a lot. But it's not an easy trek. There were probably, you know, 
other dangers down the road. You know, there are probably thieves on the road and other things like that. And so they, but, but for their situation, whether they went through dry, arid areas where they went through areas they had to climb over rocks and hills and things like that, or they went through areas of danger and that sort of thing, all of those situations were just strength after strength after strength. It says that they go from strength to strength and each one appears before God and Zion. In other words, they arrived. They were there due to the strength of the Lord. They, in their right relationship with God, God, I trust in you to give me the strength to make it through this thing, saw the strength to make it through that thing. And guess what? They made it through that thing. So having a road to Zion, a map to Zion in your heart shows that you have a right relationship with God. Letter number B, going to God's house brings blessing to other lands. I love this verse. Verse six, another kind of a strange verse. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now it's important for us to understand what the valley of Baca is. So what is the valley of Baca? And the answer is we don't know. Some people say it's this, some people say it's that kind of thing. But we do know there's a possibility that Baca can be translated, or the Valley of Baca can be translated as the Valley of Weeping. Which gives the idea that this is probably a a not-so-pleasant place. But these travelers were so happy that they were on their way to God's house. What was dry and miserable, arid, that sort of thing, was now, because of their joy, in where they were going, a place of springs and pools. In other words, you see these families who are kind of crossing maybe this valley of Baca, whatever it is. It's a place of weeping, a place of misery. I'm hot, mom, I'm tired. When are we going to be there? You know, kind of thing. And, and so they're kind of going through this. And in this situation, they're singing. We're going to the house of Zion. So a question we could ask ourselves from this that may taking this verse and trying to apply it to our lives is, how is our Monday through Saturday impacted by our longing to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's house? It's a question to ask. How is our Monday through Saturday impacted by our longing to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's house? Maybe our Valley of Baca is where we work. And it is a dry and miserable place sometimes, corrosive to your soul. Does the joy of meeting with the Lord make these dry and arid and miserable valleys places of springs or pools? Maybe just for you, but there was no way these travelers walked through a dry valley and springs and pools and just miraculously those things showed up. So when he says the valleys become places of springs and pools and rains come down, you know, and fill the pools and that sort of thing, it's not like they're, you know, they've got tambourines and they're kind of walking to Zion and miraculously kind of behind them with some sort of rainbow effect, springs and pools and green lush grass and things were showing up. That's not what's happening here. Those, place, those places were as miserable behind them as they were in front of them. But it was the the hard attitude of the people who who longed to see the Lord 
that, that, that made every situation beautiful. So this verse really shows us that, that idolatry is, is uh, never, never a better option. And what I mean by idolatry is, is longing for your cell phone or longing for, you know, something else, you know, that, you know, that type of, of thing that we're talking about. Better will always be those things. And folks, I've lost my place in my notes, and I think the printer skipped a page. <laughs> Hang on just one second. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm back on track. I turned 50 in a month. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Okay. Point three. Blessed are those who trust in God. Now, why are those who trust in God blessed? Letter number A is this. God brings true value to the lives of those who trust in him. So two things to notice here. First of all, a short time with God is more valuable than a ton of time with anything else. Okay, that's generally what we can get from verse 10. A short time with God is more valuable than a ton of time with anything else. So verse 10 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And when you think of the possibilities of the beauty of other courts at that time, there's a real big oh yeah that you could kind of give in response to that. There were some beautiful, beautiful courtrooms. There were beautiful kingdoms. There were beautiful architecture and, and, and food and, and all of these other things. And he's saying, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And in a way, this is a, a very convicting verse for us because we have to ask ourselves, if I had a thousand days with the things I love the most, minus God, would I be okay with that? I mean, ask yourself, if I had a thousand days with the things I love the most, with no limit to any of those things, minus God, would I be okay with that? I mean, questions like that really expose the idolatry of our hearts. This verse really shows us that idolatry is, is, is never better. Better will always be 24 hours in the presence of God versus 24,000 hours in the presence of the finest food. Better will be 24 hours in the presence of God than 24,000 hours in the presence of the most beautiful clothes or the most engaging of games or the greatest entertainment that can be provided or even the praising and putting you on a pedestal You are king, not just for the day, you are king for a thousand days, and you will be considered choosing second place in comparison to 24 hours where it may be 24 hours of not your day whatsoever. It may be 24 hours of your worst day in your entire life, yet in the presence of God, you made the right choice. 
And so 24 hours is always most valuable than 24,000 hours when God is involved. Second thing, a lame job in service to God is more valuable than any status you can gain from the world. Verse 10, he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Doorkeeper basically is a relatively low-level position at the door of the temple as opposed to having full access to the temple. Why can't I do the inside the temple stuff? And that's the idea that you are just on the outside. You're kind of a guardian of the temple, which is important, that sort of thing, but you're just kind of a doorkeeper. And this was not a case of false humility on the part of the sons of Korah. You know, like, we would humbly receive this lowly job, but we're sure we're glad we don't have to kind of thing. You know, we're actually on the inside of the temple, but I would. I would, if I had to, be a doorkeeper rather than this. Ha, ha, ha. Wink, wink. No, First Chronicles 9.19 points out that it's talking about the sons of Kor, and it says, Shalom, the son of Kor, son of Ebiasaph, son of Korah, and his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance." And so when they say in verse 10 that they, might, they would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, they were doorkeepers in the house of their God. That was their job. That was their day in and day out. So they, they knew from experience, it's better to be here than in the tents of the wicked. They understood that a lowly job in service to God had infinite more value, value than to be the king in the wealthiest tents of the wicked. Letter number B. God blesses beyond imagination those who trust in him. And in this final point, this is just, this is just icing on the cake, folks. How does he bless us beyond imagination? Number one is this. He is our source of light and life. He is our source of light and life. When is there ever a time, except when we are asleep maybe, that, that we don't need light? We need guidance. We need wisdom. We need truth. We need direction. We need clarity. Sometimes we need actual light. And verse 11 says that the Lord God is a son. Only place in scripture where he's directly compared or called a son. He is our light in dark places and the one who gives us life. Number two, he gives us unmerited favor and undeserved honor. One of the greatest realities your mind and my mind could, could ever land on is the horror of your sin being met with God's unmerited favor. That is one of the greatest realities you could ever mull around in your mind and uh, the, the eight zillion implications from that, and that is the idea of the horror of your sin being met by a holy God head on with unmerited favor. One of, one of the greatest realities 
ever is that. And this is why. His love is really kind of the, the chief way he blesses us beyond imagination. And when we think of that, and that mulls around in our minds, and then it almost seems arrogant, but it's perfectly okay to know that God not only meets our sin with favor, but with honor. I mean, we could do that. We could, you know, maybe someone comes at us and sins against us and everything like that, and we could say, I forgive you. We may, you know, and, and, and maybe we mean it, maybe we don't or whatever, but that's pretty easy in a sense of just saying those words, I forgive you. But then turn around and, and honor that person. Turn around and give honor to this person. No, what we tend to do, and, and this is a perfectly logical human reaction is, I forgive you, now let me just kind of tuck you away for a while or something like that, or, or let me just you know, kind, of, kind of put you off to the side because you've sinned against me. I'll forgive you, which means I won't hold the sin against you, but there's no way that I'm gonna have you over for dinner right now. There's no way I'm gonna get you know, three of my best friends and we're gonna come over and throw you up on our shoulders and say to he's a jolly good fellow, you know, or anything like that. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna give honor to you. We'll forgive you, we won't hold your sin against you, but we won't honor you. And, and here, you know, phenomenally, God not only meets our horrible, horrendous sin, with his unmerited favor, but he also meets it with honor. And that is blessing beyond imagination. And then the third thing is this. In knowing this, we can then make sense of the rest of verse 11, which says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, because if he meets my sin with favor and honor by forgiving me, by, by cleansing me, by enabling me to walk uprightly, because sometimes you can read that verse and say, well, all I have to do is walk uprightly. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about honoring the Lord or trusting in him and trusting in him. Therefore, he forgives me, he cleanses me, he enables me to walk uprightly. And after that bit of best news, of course, he won't withhold any good thing from me. Yeah. I mean, of course he won't. I mean, he's already given me his best. He's already given me himself. Tacos is nothing compared to Jesus. You know? Uh, a roof over my head is nothing compared to this, this great God who has met my heinous sin with, with love and honor and favor. So, of course, he won't withhold anything good from me. And I'm not talking Pentecostal, name it, claim it, gospel at all. I'm just saying that if a God can overcome that hurdle by his great power, then giving me all good things, which is a tremendous blessing and we should always be grateful, but is, it's kind of a no-brainer. Which really answers the question of why longing for the Lord is superior to any other longing. And we'll land the plane this way because the, the foundation of, of our longing or all our desires to long for something is really blessedness or happiness. I long for money. Why? Because it'll make me happy. I long for romance. Why? Because it will make me happy. 
But longing for those things does not hold the promises that are contained in longing to be in the presence of the Lord. If we long to be in the presence of the Lord, in other words, maybe here in his presence, in his courts, we long for his presence and we're blessed. Or maybe we're not in his courts, but we long to be there. That road is always in our hearts. We may be in the, the Valley of Baca, but, but we'll soon be together with God's people again. And therefore, we're blessed. And when we trust in him, we are blessed. And I love that precious promise in Psalm 1611 that says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If anything on this planet promises you that, it's a lie. If your spouse or future spouse looks you in the eye and says, in my presence there is fullness of joy, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore, they're lying to you. And you would be lying to them if you said the same thing. If you're watching television and all of a sudden that slick, really fast vehicle comes on and, and the voiceover says, if you sit in this vehicle and you buy this car for X amount of dollars, you will have pleasures forevermore. Don't believe it. But in the presence of the Lord... There's fullness of joy. I love that, fullness of joy. Not just joy. Because we can get joy from other things. Chocolate, you know, and, and other things. We can get joy from those things. But we can never have fullness of joy. Our joy will never be satiated or, or satisfied by any other thing. But in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And then at his right hand, the hand of power. The hand that's able to do anything. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the question then becomes, do you long to be in the presence of the Lord? Can you say like the psalmist here, my soul faints. I long to be in the courts of the Lord. Not because of the beautiful architecture, not because of even the people in there, some of my besties and that sort of thing, not because of the, you know, maybe the, the support and encouragement of, of you know, home life and other things that happen like that, but I long to be in the courts, not of, of, of pleasure. I don't want to be in the courts of, you know, any other earthly article or item or provision or anything like that. I want to be in the courts of the Lord. He's there. I want to be in his presence. I pray that we will either course correct this morning and shift our longings, or I pray that if we have these longings, you were supported and confirmed in the fact that you have the best longings you could have in, in the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time and pray and ask for your blessings on your word this morning. Lord, if there is someone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, uh, they don't have a longing 
to be in your presence because they are not in your presence. They do not have the Holy Spirit in their life. They have not confessed their sin and, and to you and, and have found repentance and the forgiveness of sin by your great sacrifice on the cross for sins. I pray that this morning will be the day of salvation for them. I pray that they will see their longings for what they are, Lord, in comparison to longing for you, Lord. I pray, oh God, that they will forsake their, maybe their longing for food or their longing for status or their longing for romance or their longing for money or their longing for their cell phones or gadgets or their, their longing for a particular type of entertainment or they're longing for just basically when it all is said and done, satisfying themselves. And I pray, oh God, that they will lay that down before you as a sin against you, confess their sin and find forgiveness and newness of life in such a way that the longing of their soul becomes a desire to want to be in your presence no matter what. And therefore, God, I pray that they will trust in you for strength, trust in you for blessing, and find in you your great provision for their life when they long to be with you and you provide yourself. Or they long to be with your people and they find themselves here every Sunday, every Wednesday, whenever the church gathers together. God, I pray that our desire will be for your courts for no other reason but to have you in our presence, oh God. May we find that safety, that shelter, that blessing, that peace, all that you provide for us and have promised to us as a result of longing for your presence in our life. And pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.